0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
2: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so glad to be joined today by Emily St. John Mandel. Her five previous novels include The Glass Hotel and Station Eleven, which was a finalist for a National Book Award and the Penn Faulkner Award for fiction, has been translated into 35 languages and is the basis for the HBO Max series by the same name. She lives in New York City with her husband and daughter and her latest is called Sea of Tranquility. Emily, so happy to
1: see your face. Morning. You too. I, I'm, I was just, as you read that intro, I was remembering the last time we did this. It was like the apocalyptic first days of the pandemic. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Flashing back. It was so intense. Well, I was flashing back because I read your book. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's a lot of <laughs> pandemic in Sea of Tranquility, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah. so,
2: so just set the scene a little bit, when Glass Hotel came out, we, it, we were new into this.
1: The pub date was March 24th, 2020. So, like, we were distracted. <laughs> we, we were <laughs> distracted. Yeah. And then,
2: of course, I thought I was being kind of clever when I said, What does it feel like to be living in a pandemic when you wrote that book?
1: You know what I thought? It feel seems bad like maybe <laughs> you got that question
2: many times.
1: A couple of times, but you might have been the first. <laughs> so- Um, yeah, you know, there is this auto fiction element in sea of tranquility, which is, um, that that's the only part of the book that I started writing before the pandemic, because I I have this, I have a really weird life is really what it comes down to. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I feel like it's pretty extraordinary that I get to do this, like to be a full-time writer is just an incredible thing. And, truly not something I ever expected. You know, my, my working assumption up until probably a year after station 11 came out was that I would just always be an administrative assistant. And I, you know, I was at peace with that. So I feel like I live this kind of incredible life getting to do this at the same time. Um, people say such interesting things to me on tour and interesting is doing a lot of heavy lifting. (laughs) (laughs) I think I really mean sexist and bizarre. Um, and to be clear, the overwhelming majority of my interactions with readers are really lovely, you know, um, but man, that 1%. <laughs> so one oh, percent?
2: yeah, it's intense. About it. yeah, I feel so like I remember seeing a tweet of yours, um, in which someone called your husband a hero or something like that
1: for <laughs> yeah, yeah, taking uh... care of your child. <laughs> yeah. So my husband and I have uh, a daughter who's six and- you know, to be clear, like he is the father of that child, uh, just to set up the context here. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I was in Texas. I want to say Dallas, but I don't remember. Um, and this woman said to me, you, you must have a very kind husband to take care of your child while you do this. And it's like, in the moment, my mind just went completely blank and I lost all access to language and had nothing to say. Um, but yeah, you know, you can just file that under a vast category of things that male business travelers absolutely do not hear when they're providing for their family in a traveling capacity. <laughs> so anyways, my, my very long winded point that I was getting to is um, I feel bad that I've put interviewers on the spot because, you know, I was working on this auto fiction <laughs> and then the pandemic hit and it I kind of filtered it through this sci-fi lens and it became part of a much larger, much stranger work. And I just, I hadn't thought it through that I'd make interviewers feel bad. (laughs) (laughs) Delivering these questions verbatim back to them in the text. (laughs) I just feel less special, I think. (laughs) And
2: I do love that even when I was asking you, um, what's up next? I think you actually said the words, this crazy sci-fi thing.
1: <laughs> Did I really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. sea of tranquility is so much a product of 2020 in New York city, which the book is a little deranged because we were all a little deranged. I mean, that was just, um, I, you know, where I think it's really important to have an awareness of privilege and, to be able to look, you know, honestly and fully at how much worse any given situation could be, and how much worse it is sometimes for other people. So, you know, in, in that spirit, I do feel like I had this incredibly privileged pandemic experience. Uh, my husband and I did not lose our jobs. We were able to get our work done. Nobody we love died of COVID nineteen. We don't have long COVID. At the same time, I think we can acknowledge that all those things are true you know, for a lot of us. And we've been through this incredibly traumatic two years. Um, so it, yeah, you know, when, it, when the pandemic hit, for the first couple of weeks, it was, it was hard to work because I live about a mile from a hospital in Brooklyn. So yeah. just the, the constant sirens, it was unbelievable. But you really do get used to anything. and and yeah, I found that after a few weeks, it was possible to work again. I started writing Sea of Tranquility in a more serious way, like taking the auto fiction and, you know, building stuff up around it. Um, but it, it's it's kind of funny. It's like that those times were so horrible that I felt like it gave me a kind of sense of creative recklessness where I, um, I just had this feeling like, I don't care what people think of this work. Um, life is terrible, I'm gonna write whatever I want. And you know, here's a time traveler on a moon colony in the year 2400. So yeah, it, it was a very, it was a crazy sci-fi thing from, uh, for the very beginning. I
2: love that. And, and I love that, yes, you're doing auto fiction, Like it's a very, we talked about it last fall when Sally Rooney did it, but you're fiction takes place in the year 2020, Uh wait a minute,
1: like 2203 years, 2203. Is that it? Yeah. It's somewhere in there. So, so that, that changes the perspective a little bit. It does a little bit. Yeah. The author's on tour, but she's going home to a moon colony. Um, yeah. it. I don't know. That just felt like a more fun way to play with that form, which and is love, not I'm Sorry. Like, no, I was just gonna say like, which is not at all to suggest that the other way of doing it, that's more straightforward. Like I find that really interesting too, but yeah, it was just fun to take these real interactions and every conversation and weird interaction that Olive has on the road is autobiographical, uh, but just to filter that through sci-fi, is just, uh, it was an approach that interested me.
2: Yeah, and I, I love the idea that in this way future date, there are still bookstores on earth. <laughs>
1: Kind of Is there are
2: tours to take you there.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's something utopian in that as futures go. That's that's yeah, the, like I the anti-Station-11.
2: I love that.
1: Hunting down answers to your
2: questions can be rewarding. When it comes to hiring, you don't always have as much time as you'd like to spend finding great candidates with the right skills. That's why there's Indeed, the best hiring partner your team can get. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements, or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites, hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus you only pay for quality applications that meet your must have requirements. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your post at indeed.com/maris. Offer valid through April 30th. Go to indeed.com/maris to claim your $75 credit before April 30th. indeed.com/maris. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. And even that Olive has a a conversation with her husband about the hollow space and how tiring it is to take meetings in the hollow space because they feel, well, they're not real. They are and they're not like, oh, look what we're doing right now. (laughs) Here we are
1: on Zoom, right? I'm in Los Angeles. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, that was kind of surprising to me Um, that like. You know, like, and to, to be clear, like, I find short meetings on Zoom to be less tiring than like the short version in real life, real yeah. life, whatever that means. Um, because you don't have to go anywhere, you just like come here for an hour and then you leave. Um, but there's something about epic Zooms, like, when it really keeps going, that's somehow innervating in a way that I don't quite understand. Maybe it's because you see yourself. I know we've had two years to get used to this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's weird
2: yeah and i like that olive is just one character in the in this wacky story that also involves characters from the glass hotel yeah
1: that, was, that was fun
2: going back to kayette and to to some of our our favorite characters there and making them not the heroes of
1: this story yeah sure so One of my favorite novels, and this will not be a surprise to anybody who reads Sea of Tranquility, is um, Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. And, you know, there are so many things I love about that novel. One of the things I find the most striking is the structure of it, where he employs this kind of dazzling symmetrical structure where you start way back in time. I haven't read the book in a while, but say it's 1650. Mm -hmm. um, And then you move way to the far future and then back again. And... I've always really admired that. I tried to do that in the Glass Hotel, and it absolutely did not work. It was just like fell completely flat. But with this project, I wanted to try again, um, as I guess an homage to that book, but also, um, you know, just to kind of experiment with a new form, like a more a more formal, more structured um, approach to the structure of the novel. So once I realized I was doing that. I knew that I wanted to stop for a moment in February 2020 because I'm kind of obsessed with that month where, you know, if you remember in New York, we're not idiots. Like we knew what was coming, but we somehow didn't believe what was coming. And that cognitive dissonance is fascinating where, you know, what I remember of that month is absorbing these apocalyptic reports from China and then Italy and elsewhere And being kind of breezy about it, like, oh, I'm sure it's in New York City. And everybody was like, yeah, totally. Uh, You know, I'm just gonna drop my kid off at school, get in the subway without a mask, and then go have a meeting in a crowded room. (laughs) Like we just were not making that leap uh, to doing anything about what we knew to be true. So I wanted to return to that moment. And once I realized that, I realized, well, I have these ready-made characters waiting in the wings and they're really interesting to me. So it was partly just that, um, you know, the character from that period that you see the most in Sea of Tranquility is Morella, who was a pretty small part of the Glass Hotel. You know, she's Vincent's best friend and she, she's important, but like not a huge role. So I knew I wanted more of her story, like what had happened to her after, yeah. um, you know, after she and her husband had lost everything and she'd lost her husband. So yeah, once I had that, I, I knew I wanted to spend more time with these characters.
2: And I like that if, in my reading anyway, if Olive and these characters exist in the same story and they both take a part in it, along with a whole bunch of other people, then the world has to be bigger than than any of them realize in the time.
1: I love that. Yeah, yeah, that's a cool idea.
2: Um, and And I find it's, I mean, so at one point um, we we get a section of the novel Marry and bad all um,
1: that is olive's pandemic novel and yeah you repeat the phrase we knew yeah, it was coming we knew like, it was coming appears over and over again because that that does haunt me about that period <laughs> you know, like we knew it was coming but we didn't believe it and yeah it's it's interesting to me
2: and certainly with time travel that's the number one question, right? Like, what what would you change if you could change things? Yeah,
1: exactly. And also, like, um, you know, how does time travel work if, we're, if we kind of impose ideas of free will and cause and effect on it? And I feel like that's something I struggle with in most of the time travel fiction I've absorbed, you know, whether it's reading or movies, where... You know, it's like, okay, suppose in 10 minutes I step into a time machine and go back to Denver in 1912. Haven't I then created an infinite loop where I was always mm-hmm. going to step into a time, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and then what does that do to free will? If you don't have free will in a novel, that seems to me to be disastrous to character development. So the only way I could make it work for myself was by imposing this whole other level of weirdness, which is the simulation hypothesis, which yeah. is. Uh, one of my like favorite crazy theories. And for anybody who's not familiar, it's this idea that we're living in a simulation. And what I love about it is you can find really smart people to argue either side of that argument. Like, you know, everybody's very persuasive from opposite ends. And what I personally came to in, in thinking through this book and writing it was maybe we're living in a simulation. Um, if we are, so what? You know, that I feel like that doesn't make our lives any less meaningful in the same way that, you know, I guess you could apply that to cities where it's like there's something very simulated about a city environment, um, you know, this very altered space that we walk through. It's very far from nature, um, the electrical and water systems, etc. cetera. That doesn't mean your life is less real in a city than it would be you know, living out in the woods. So, yeah, it was uh, it was fun to get to play with that idea in fiction
2: yeah and i love so in the year 2400 you kind of guide us through the time institute and ha- and how some of the rules there anyway and ha- and how some of it works in terms of altering the timeline gasbury is told that it's not weakness that 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 forces you to want to change things so much as humanity yeah
1: you know and that's if I, if I, this is such a crazy sentence to say aloud. Um, if I were a time traveler, you know, yeah. like confronting like the moral ambiguities. Um, imagine if you were going back in time. You were forbidden to change the timeline in any way, but you knew the guy you were talking to was going to drown the following morning. You know, do you save that drowning man? Do you say, "Hey, don't go to the beach tomorrow," or do you let it play out? And and yeah, that was that was something that they were grappling with in that time period. As You know what you need to do as a matter of policy, and to not create chaos, is to let it play out. But what kind of a person doesn't save a drowning man? You know, of course, you would want to change the timeline, and maybe that's weakness, or maybe it's just being human.
2: Yeah. And tell me a little bit about building that world and what you included. I mean, Sea of Tranquility is a a slim novel. Yeah. um, That contains so much. How, how do you decide how much detail to give?
1: Um, I've always tended toward giving a minimum amount of detail. And that's partly a strategy to hopefully engage readers with the text where, you know, I feel like I could have Gaspari walk into a room and I could describe every detail of the room. And there are good books that do that. Or I could just say Gaspary walked into her office. And I think that might force you as a reader to imagine an office, Mm -hmm. which means you're instantly more engaged with the text you're reading than you would be if I was like spelling out every detail of, you know, knickknacks on the shelves and all the rest of it. I kind of feel the same way with characters. Um, I try not to describe what anybody looks like too, too granularly. And, you know, they're, are definitely pluses and minuses to that. The reason I do it is because I want casting to be open if there's a screen adaptation where, you know, if I say that Gasparri's white, then Gasparri's gonna be white. If I say he, if I just, I think the only descriptor in the book is that he has dark hair, which means that any actor of, of any race could play him. Um, so yeah, you know, I try to minimize description partly for that, um, partly just because I've come to really value velocity in text. Um, And that was something that I picked up from reading noir. You know, I uh, I used to read a lot of uh, of Chandler and yeah, you know, that's something that I think literary novelists can learn from the genre world, you know, whatever that means. genre is a whole other rabbit hole, (laughs) but, you know, sometimes there's real value in velocity. Um, So I'm always trying to just not write the paragraphs or cut out the paragraphs that readers will skip over. And so that's part of it. Um, But also I kind of wanted to experiment with form a little bit. It took me a while to figure out what Sea of Tranquility was going to be. And and an early idea I had was that maybe it would be two novellas. Um, I've read a couple of books like that recently that that I really loved. Um, So yeah, I I always wanted it to be a short novel. or I should say, once I realized it wasn't going to be two novellas, I wanted it to be a very short novel, maybe even just a novella. And yeah, I think it came in just over the novel threshold. It's like 55,000 words or something.
2: I don't want to get into a a whole um, genre, not here, but tell me what it's like to specifically set out to write science fiction. And is the marketing of that or, you know, marketing is talking about this book different in any way because of that?
1: Not really. Like, I feel like we have a tendency, not just as readers, but like as a species to put things into silos, like it's A or B, it's one or zero, it's detective fiction or literary fiction or sci-fi. But I kind of feel like all of my books and Sea of Tranquility is the sixth like they are all kind of fundamentally singing the same song. you know, it's um, even though some of them are set in the future and some not, and some of them could reasonably categorized as crime, be categorized as crime fiction and some as sci-fi, um, They are fundamentally about people. and I've imposed the same values on them in terms of hopefully a level of clarity and lucidity and beauty. I'm always aiming for beauty in the pro style, but also velocity. So it doesn't really feel that different to be honest. Um, the, uh, some of the, like some of the interviews are different. You know, I've taught, I'm talking to more sci-fi people. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really feel different than, especially than say station 11, which was also sure. speculative, but yeah.
2: Um, and I love the idea that, in Olive's world, she's doing this lecture tour, basically about her research into pandemics.
1: That was my—I gave all of my Station Eleven lecture, so now I can never deliver it again. <laughs> so it was—I um—I did this epic promotional tour for Station Eleven, which, to be clear, I was completely into. That was—that was the book that changed my career and changed my life, and my instinct was to just maximize its impact. So yeah, I did this epic tour and then I started doing paid lectures and onstage conversations all around the U.S., which was a really great side gig for years. And I was doing that right up until, well, right right up until the end. Um, I canceled a lecture in, I want to say Milwaukee or its outskirts on March 12th, 2020. So, you know, it was just like, I kept going until the pandemic hit. And over time, that lecture evolved into something that I, that just became more and more interesting to me. You know, I kept on adding things and taking things away. I I talked about writing Station Eleven, but I also got pretty deeply into the research that I did, into the history of pandemics. And then there was this other whole vein about um, why we're interested in uh, apocalyptic fiction. Yeah. And and so that was, you know, I had all this material that I really liked, and I'd never thought of publishing it, um, because it really was more of a lecture than an essay, and it would have taken a ton of work, um, and I would have cannibalized my lecture career, (laughs) but I guess (laughs) I decided to cannibalize my lecture career in a more interesting way. (laughs) So yeah, I, I I don't think I'll ever deliver that lecture again as a lecture, but it was fun to give it to all of. You know, and just kind of write about the experience of grappling with these questions about, you know, about what the randomness of pandemics or the end of the world or this this idea I came to that I really liked where just the, what if the world's always ending and a new world's always appearing around us and in the normal course of history, I think that happens too gradually and too subtly to really, yeah, uh, to like to really perceive it. But in a time like we've just been through, you know, the pandemic moves us through those moments at warp speed where, you know, I feel like a lot of things in our culture are really different now than they were 18 months ago. It's, it's kind of fascinating to me.
2: I'm never going to eat at a buffet
1: again. <laughs> <laughs> Same buffets are done. Uh, I'm just going to wear masks every time I get on a plane. Like That seems smarter. <laughs> it like, seems wise. Yeah. And, and also um, it's funny how all of a sudden, the Monday to Friday, nine to five in-person work week just seems incredibly old-fashioned. Sure like
2: does.
1: it would be weird to me um, if I were talking to someone who commutes into an office where they had to go there every day, I'm just like, wait, what, <laughs> like, why? <laughs> so yeah, these are, they're interesting changes. Absolutely. Um, yeah. There there's
2: speaking of exhausting things, the idea that we used to
1: commute every day. I know. Oh. Why did we do that to ourselves? And Why? I guess it was lack of imagination. Like we didn't realize, or I guess if we're being honest here, like nobody's bosses realized. That, nobody's bosses realized. Yeah, but you, you don't have to. Um, you know, that's, that doesn't need to be a thing in the internet age. No. Um.
2: And I also just love the colonialist thread that, that, runs through the book and and, and features so much in Olive's lectures about the pandemic, um, that illness is its own kind of plague. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, that's not what I was, (laughs) illness (laughs) is its own kind of, way for a dominant culture to my brain isn't working for a dominant culture to um subjugate weaker people
1: yeah absolutely um colonialism is something i've thought a lot about partly just the experience of growing up as a white person in canada which um Mm -hmm you know, I'm going to venture to say has gone much further than the United States has in terms of recognizing, um, what happened to the indigenous people there and, you know, coming to terms with that. Um, partly because of that, partly because I have, um, I have kind of fancy ancestors <laughs> How to put this. It's like, okay, so my, my 29th great grandfather, one of my 29th great grandfathers was William the Conqueror. So, because of that i can trace my genealogy back really 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 far and you know i'm descended from people who participated in the crusades um who went off on like ridiculous shenanigans in the raj you know this whole like british india period um and then my you know at least a couple of my great grandfathers came to canada um you know, in all the problematic, settler ways that people came to Canada in that period. And what I found myself thinking about was there's something about colonialism that kind of reminds me in a weird way of the simulation hypothesis. And what I mean by that is I feel like the tragedy of, of colonialism is that people are acting within this kind of false framework, you know, so. It's like they come to these places like Canada in the service of a false narrative. And it's you know, so in Canada, that was the narrative of the empty land. you know, the idea that here was this territory uh, that's just there for the taking, and nobody's there. Of course, people were there. You know, and that was that was where the horror came from and the bloodshed. And so there, there's something about that about living within a false story and operating within a false story that reminded me weirdly of this idea of living in a simulation.
2: That's, i want to think about that for a while. Emily, thank you so much. This was great. Before we go, would you like to recommend some books for us, please?
1: I would. Um, I read a debut novel recently by Courtney Dinell. That's a D-E-N-E-L-L-E called It's Not Nothing. And it is harrowing. Um, I believe it's also auto-fiction to some extent. It's so well-written. It's just got this incredibly clear, lucid prose style that I really admired. So that's one that I loved. Um, I also recently read a book uh, called Scary Monsters. And this is actually, I found myself thinking about it while we were talking because it's got a structure like the one that I almost used with two novellas. And I'm just Googling the author's name because... It's uh, 7 a.m. in Los Angeles, i blanking on it. Um, yeah, Scary Monsters by Michelle de Kretzer. And yeah, it's it's this really interesting work about immigration and belonging. And it's uh, the structure was just really cool. It's two novellas, and you don't realize how they're linked until you're some distance into the second one. And I think they can be read in either order, and it still really works. So yeah, it was just a a fascinating and, and I thought really well-written book.
2: That's such a, that's such a wonderful reading moment when you, when it finally all connects. Yeah. And and, we get, we certainly have that, that same, uh, feeling reading Sea of Tranquility. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.